as we begin our time. Father, we come to you expectant because we know that you love to speak to your people. We pray that we might hear what you're saying to us today. We pray that you would unstop our deaf ears and help us to hear your voice. In your Son's name, for his glory. Amen. There's a, um, there's a car just across the way from our house with a bumper sticker. And on it, it says, One life, live it. It's often been said that we, as Westerners, we live in a culture where we're trying to cram stuff into our lives all the time. We're trying to maximise our time here to do all the stuff that we can. We've got Blackberries and iPhones, and we're just working and keeping going and cramming stuff in, squeezing as much in as we can. And so we're asking the question the whole time, what do I get out of this? What about me? What am I doing that for? One life? Live it? Well, it seems to me as you read your Bible that Jesus would be thoroughly behind that idea. He wants us to live life to the full. He wants us to live abundant lives, to make the most of our time here, to, to flourish and to live. That's what he longs for, for his people. And yet at the heart of the passage, it's, it's not about what we can squeeze in and all that we can do. Do you see it? It's only in following him that we gain life. It's the daily, painful, persevering in the footsteps of Jesus. And and then we live. Of course, in our culture, living for, for self is all about the absence of suffering. Any kind of a hard graft and things aren't right. We've got a generation of teenagers who who think that they want to be celebrities. For what reason? Well, for being on a reality TV programme or or just for anything. Make me a celebrity, please. Any kind of perseverance, any kind of hard work, any kind of graft, and that's not what I signed up for. No, thank you. I've been struck by that fact again recently reading a new book out on marriage by an American pastor called Tim Keller. And he says that the reason people go into marriage has changed over the last few decades. He says this, he says, Marriage used to be a public institution for the common good, and now it is a private arrangement for the satisfaction of the individual. That is, marriage used to be about us, and now it's about me. And so people say, why work at something that's hard? Why bother? If it's not satisfying me anymore, then I'm off, thank you. And you see it day by day, week by week in the celebrity marriages. Just um, Russell Brand and Katy Perry just this last week. Uh, 13 months of marriage. It's sad. And if there's a shift within, within marriage, something of the building block of society, then no wonder we see it in society at large. What about me? What do, what do I get out of this? And if I don't feel good anymore, then I'll find something or someone else to satisfy me. And that really is a stark contrast, though, to what we're finding here in Luke 9. 
Jesus says, you need to live differently, which I take it means we've got a huge opportunity in our current culture. Amazing, exciting opportunities to be counter-cultural, to show people what it means to follow Jesus, to be different. And we'll do that for the next four weeks. We're going to be thinking through what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a Christian. We're going to think about what it means to live in the light of the cross daily following Jesus. We're going to zoom in on next week. We're thinking about our thinking and how we relate to other Christians. How does the cross impact how we relate to other Christians? The week after that, we're thinking about our working and how the cross impacts on how we work, what kind of employees or employers we are. We're thinking the week after that on giving and money and finances. Again, how does the cross impact and shape that And then the final week, our willingness to suffer. This week, though, Luke 9. This is the pivotal moment in Luke's Gospel. It seems the disciples have got something of who Jesus is. For the first time, they're there. We're going to split the passage into two sections. Um, So firstly, verse 18 to 22. And we'll look at God's King who suffers and lives. And then secondly, we'll look at verse 23 to 27, daily following God's king who suffers. And so we live. So firstly, God's king who suffers and lives. Which, of course, for many then and for many now, is a contradiction in terms. They say and they, they said then, well, how does that work? How does God's king Suffer. They were expecting a knight in shining armour, someone to come and sort out all our problems. Someone to come and make life perfect again. To boot out the enemies, not a king who ends up dead. What's that all about? That's not part of the script. Yet Jesus is very clear, that's why he came. That is why he came. It's striking just how quickly you move from Peter, seeing that he is the Christ, the Messiah, that is God's king, and straight away, Jesus, to talk about his death. He moves the topic of conversation over to the cross. What must happen? Whatever it means for him to be the Christ, the Messiah, God's King, that must be tied up with death. That must be wrapped up with his suffering. That seems to be the, the flow there. If you look at the verses, verse 18 to 22, follow it through with me. So verse 18, you've got a general question from Jesus. Once when he was praying in private, his disciples were there with him and he asks them, who do the crowds say I am? He starts very general. And verse 19, hedging their bets somewhat, they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets from long ago has come back to life. They're parroting the crowd's thoughts. Jesus is a prophet they seem to be saying. A prophet of old, he's Elijah, as Malachi tells us, the one to come before the Lord was to be an Elijah-like character. Or, or John the Baptist, even. So the crowds think he's a messenger. He's come with a message. He's a prophet. And he was. But he was more than that. He was the message. He was the message. Not simply preparing us for the main event. He, he was the main event. He was the one they'd been waiting for. And then Jesus zooms in on them. Verse 20. What have they 
concluded about him. It's far less general and far more personal. What about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. He focuses in and Peter speaks. You are the king that God has promised. The wait is over. The king that was promised centuries ago is here. You're here. And Peter's got that. I take it that might be your question here this morning. That might be where you are. Perhaps Jesus is asking you, who do you say I am? Let me be very clear. The first thing we need to get straight in our minds if we're going to flourish in life is to work out who Jesus is. It could be you're here as a guest or a visitor. A very warm welcome to you. If you're not someone who calls themselves a Christian, let me challenge you at the start of 2012 to to get that truth sorted in your mind, to grapple with that question. Maybe that's your New Year's resolution for this year. Who is Jesus? I'm going to say, feel free to take a Bible if you don't have one. Take it with you and read it. Or or maybe near where you live, there might be churches that put on Christianity Explored courses or or Alpha courses or that kind of thing. Please do go along and, and work out who Jesus is and why he matters. Or maybe if you're a local from here and you would like to join a Christianity Explored course, we will put one on and start it for you. It's one of the most important questions in life. Who is Jesus? It's fundamental. It's one that often people actually, as an adult, never really think about. They stop believing in him at about the age they they stop believing in the tooth fairy and never give him a second thought again. Maybe you were regular. There might be that you're here week after week after week and you've not really made that decision yourself yet. Often you meet people who answer the question rather like the disciples do at the start. So they answer on behalf of other people. So, who do you say Jesus is? Well, my parents have always been to church. You know, and so I'll just go along with them. Or my friends are convinced, and I like them and I respect them, so I'll just tag along. Or people who I just love, they're convinced who Jesus is. So I'll sort of tag on with their faith. But, you know, the spotlight must fall on you. Who, who do you say Jesus is? Do take time in 2012 to grapple with that question. It is fundamental. It's one that we can't duck, and it's one that deserves our attention and our thoughts. And Peter says, you are God's king. And yet no sooner as he nailed it, than the conversation moves to where Jesus must go. Verse 22, And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and he must be killed. And on the third day, be raised to life. Before you can blink, his identity and his mission are tied up. They, they need to know the kind of king he's going to be. And it's not what they were thinking. It's not what they expected. Now, if we've got our Christmas cracker hat still on, um, then we might have not be quite so surprised by this point. If we've been reading through Luke's Gospel, this might not be the revelation for us that we expected. So we may have heard in Zechariah's prophetic song at the start of Luke that the one from the line of David is here. The Christ is here. 
God's king is here. There's excitement and there's joy. There's expectation. The wait is over. And then, at the temple, a bit of a damp squib, Simeon's there. He says to Mary, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will, spoken, that will be spoken against. An inkling, even at the start, that he won't be the kind of king, perhaps, that they were expecting. It won't be the plain sailing, so to speak, that they might have thought it would be. And as soon as Peter sees perhaps what Zechariah's got, here is the Christ. The wait is over. And Jesus brings Simeon's words into the equation as well. He's destined to turn things on their head. He's not going to be the kind of king you're expecting. He's going to suffer. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be killed. And he's going to be raised again. And it would have been shocking. Shocking for them. The one they've waited 700 years for. And that's the kind of king he's going to be. The other shock, though, is that his followers will have to experience the same. So we've seen God's king who suffers and lives. The second point, daily following God's king who suffers. And so we live. Now often these sermons on January the 1st are all about New Year's resolutions. Making plans, making determinations for the year ahead. And there can be real wisdom in that as we take stock and we look back and we look ahead to plans for the year to come. And if that's what you're after, here's the best I can give you. Okay, number one, be a disciple. That's it. Okay, be a disciple. Ask the question, am I daily following in his footsteps? Because Jesus says we have to. This isn't for just the super spiritual Christian or the really keen ones. This is for everyone. Everyone who seeks to follow Jesus must daily follow in the footsteps of God's suffering king. And there are three aspects we'll look at, three aspects that he puts up for us. The first one is there in verse 23. He says this, If we want to follow him, we must imitate him daily. Just as Jesus would deny himself and take up his cross, and so do we. Every day, without exception, every single day, that's how we follow him. Now, to carry the cross in our culture has somewhat lost the sort of punch that it would initially had, though. For us, it's an idiom. It's, it means, well, you know, we all have unpleasant or painful or yucky things in our lives. That's just my cross to bear, yeah? And yet, to carry a cross then, well, it would have at least meant shame. The shame of Imagine it having to publicly be paraded and carry your method of execution through a town and they would mock you and then strip you and nail you to it. Imagine that. And so for a Christian to deny themselves, to carry their cross daily is every morning to be prepared to go the way of Christ. To put our agenda, our plans aside. To follow him. Perhaps it's to bear the weight of shame of being a Christian. Maybe because you're prepared publicly to stand up for Christ. Maybe it's just to let your colleagues know 
that you're a Christian. And so to accept all that goes with that. Perhaps it's just being very different in school or in the office or at the toddler group or wherever it is that you hang out during the week. No doubt being mocked or at least looked down upon. Perhaps it's being overlooked for that promotion because you're just a little sidelined because you keep hanging on to those funny ideas. And so the boss overlooks you. Perhaps like Jesus, it's just being sacrificial for others. Maybe it is baking that cake or making that phone call or having those people over or blocking out some time in your diary to to talk to that friend that needs it. Maybe it's forgiving someone and not holding a grudge against them. That's sacrificial. Daily imitating Jesus. It may be very costly for us. Be be aware that there will be brothers and sisters around the world for whom it will be far more costly and it may well end in death. And we say, that doesn't sound much like life. I thought you said this was the way we were going to have life and to flourish. It sounds more like masochism to me. Well, look at how Jesus continues, verse 24 and 25. He says, if we want life, we must lose it. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? The world says, do you want life? Well, look after number one. Grab all you can. Get as high up the pile as possible. And Jesus, the most loving man in all the world, says, do you want life? Do you want real life? The life that you were made for? Come follow me. Come on, lose your life for me. And by losing your life, then you will save it. He's saying, he's saying, hand me the keys. Let me decide where we go now. Let me call the shots. Let me set the agenda. I'm the boss all the time. And as you live like that, so Jesus says, you will have life. Because of course, verse 25, you know, you might have all the stuff in the world. You might have power and respect in the workplace. You might have letters after your name as long as the alphabet. You might have mansions and Bentleys and savings and gadgets and holidays and all the stuff you could dream of. You might be a millionaire. You might be able to retire in your 40s. You might gain the whole world. But what happens when you die? It's gone. Because you will die one day and if you've not given Jesus a thought and you've not bowed the knee to him then you've lost everything. Including yourself, including your very soul. Now for me in preparing this, the bite, the challenge that I've found is where do I draw my lines in discipleship? That is, where do I only want to partially lose my life for Jesus? And yet it's very much an all or nothing. It's very black or white. But easily I can want life now as the world sees it. And I can want life then as Jesus sees it. So I'm happy to kind of give him the car keys, so to speak. 
But now and again, when things get uncomfortable, I'll be quite keen to take them back, thank you, and just do things my way. It's as if I want to save my life now and save my life then. So where do we take the car keys back? Perhaps it's not speaking to that person that we know we ought to about the Lord Jesus because it's uncomfortable. Perhaps it's to do with how I spend my money and the way that I hoard stuff. Perhaps it's whether I can be bothered to to care for my brothers and sisters. Perhaps it's what I think about, what I watch, what I look at on the internet. Perhaps it's how I use my leisure time, that, that me time that you can't have a part of. Yet whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? Of course, as Jesus says that, he knows there's more to life than this, than what you see here now. To lose your forfeit your very self points ahead to his return to, to life eternal. And that's picked up again in verse 26. I think that's our final challenge. If we want honour before Jesus, we must not be ashamed before the world. The very striking words there in verse 26. If anyone's ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. The focus is zoomed ahead and everyone gets to see the true glory of Jesus. And how we've lived now impacts what happens then. If we've been ashamed of him now, he says, then he will be ashamed of us then. Do you see it? It's terrifying. I think it's relational. I think it's about relationship. It's shame about a person. It's shame about what a person says. Me and my words. And so it reveals our relationship with him. I take it it's a particularly hard one for us, actually, in the culture that we live in, and if we're of a particularly timid temperament, then this is hard. So in a relativistic culture where all truth is truth, and yet Jesus says, I am the truth, we can almost be ashamed by that. Or in a culture where God, if he exists, is a great, big, lovely granddad, and yet Jesus speaks so much about God's anger, against sin, then we can almost be ashamed by that. Or in a culture where atheists are loud and people listen to them, and yet Jesus says he was God, we can almost be ashamed by that. It's easy to keep quiet when we ought not to. It's easy to almost be ashamed. Living for Jesus is hard, which of course which of course is funny when people say it's just a psychological crutch. Because they've probably not read these verses, have they? Actually, it's very hard to live for Jesus. In the film, The Gladiator, there's that memorable line that says, what we do in life echoes in eternity. And you can see that to be almost be true in these verses, not quite as the film means us to believe, though. But the daily battle now impacts then 
how we relate to Jesus now impacts how he relates to us then. There's a chap at the end of the 19th century called uh, Charles Thomas Studd, C.T. Studd. Many of you will have heard of him. He gave up a, a privileged family back, background, a small fortune, his place on the England cricket team, and he went to preach the gospel in China, and then later India, and then after that, Central Africa. And the motto that he gave to the organisation that he founded, the mission organisation, was this, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, and no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. And yet as we finish, as we look ahead to this year, to every single day of this year, I want us to remember whose footsteps it is that we're following in. Because if we take our eyes off him, we're going to have no chance of following him. We won't be prepared or willing or able to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to follow him. To imitate him daily, to lose life, to not be ashamed. If we take our eyes off Christ, we won't have a chance. So whose footsteps are we following? And this isn't that Jesus, the army general, who sits miles behind the front line, barking out orders at us. This isn't Jesus, the, arm, the angry headmaster, who wants us to suffer and to fall and to fail. This isn't Jesus who says, well, do as I say, but don't do as I do. This is the Jesus who goes before us, the one who suffers many things, who was rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, the one who was killed and on the third day was raised to life again. This is the Jesus whom we follow, the one who's gone before us. Let's pray. Lord, would we please keep our eyes fixed on Jesus in 2012? Every single day, would we look to him? And would we follow him? In his name we pray. Amen.